0: I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Alejandro Soto. This is How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show. Today is Tuesday, August 29th, 2017. Coming up, we talk with two scientists who have studied the devastating climate changes
1: that led to massive extinctions, all as a result of an asteroid impact 66 million years ago.
0: We begin with a look at some of the recent news in science. In case you're worried that not only your memory is fading as you age, but also your gut instinct about danger, fear not. A new study shows that our gut instinct about whether a stranger poses a threat is as good when you're 80 as when you're 18. And here's some rare good news. Being streetwise appears to be a skill honed in childhood, but actually not fully reliable until adulthood. Kind of like a red wine. According to the research, as children, we are generally poor at judging threat, and then we develop sharper instincts around the age of 18 to 20. And these instincts don't decline as we age. The new research, led by Dr. Liam Satchel of the University of Portsmouth, examines our ability at various ages to gauge others' aggression. He wanted to assess this ability against the backdrop of a lot of debate over to what extent the fear of crime affects older people. Dr. Satchel and his colleagues found that the relationship between age and fear of crime is influenced by many factors, including the type of crime feared, gender, and a person's belief in their ability to defend themselves. Granted, the new study is small. It examined threat perception in 39 people aged 59 to 91 and in 87 people aged 20 to 28. Still, nearly all, 95% of both groups correctly gauge the aggression or level of intimidation of five women and four men filmed walking on a treadmill. The study was published last week in Europe's Journal of Psychology.
1: A team of researchers from the University of Washington have been able to infect a computer with malware by encoding malicious information into a sequence of DNA that the computer was analyzing. The multidisciplinary team of biotechnologists and computer scientists synthesized a DNA sequence specifically in order to exploit a known weakness of a DNA analysis computer program designed with common open source biotechnology software. Upon analyzing the sequence, the vulnerability allowed a remote machine the ability to execute arbitrary code on the analyzing machine. In a statement from the Paul G. Allen School of Computer Science and Engineering, quote, new and unexpected interactions may be possible at this boundary between electronic and biological systems. The results were submitted to the peer-reviewed Usenix Security Symposium in August 2017, where computer security experts will ponder the security and privacy implications. As computer power has increased exponentially, The ability to have DNA sequenced has become much more commonly accessible for uses such as personalized medicine, ancestry, or just plain curiosity. But there are new types of privacy concerns for those who might avail themselves of such exciting new technology. Is this true? The short answer is, well, in practice, no, but in theory, yes. The University of Washington explicitly stated there is not present cause for alarm about present-day threats. The computer program with the vulnerability was specifically designed to have that vulnerability, and so this is more a proof of concept. However, it did demonstrate that academics who write and share open-source software to solve academic problems— do not follow security best practices that are more common in the commercial world, and perhaps that needs to change. Computers store information in a different way that living organisms use DNA, and so the team faced some interesting challenges. A computer stores information as bits, that is, a sequence of ones and zeros electronically. It can store any arbitrary sequence with equal ease, but DNA sequences are not so arbitrary. DNA information is made from four specific nucleic acids, adenine, guanine, cysteine, and thymine, most commonly known just by their initials A, G, C, and T. DNA formed with G's and C's form a stronger double helix. If there are too many, then the strand will not open up for sequencing. But too many A's and T's, and the strand may fall apart. The DNA sequencing facility was not able to synthesize the original malware developed by the team into DNA, and the computer scientists had to come up with a different version to take the peculiarities of DNA encoding into account. So there's no need to worry just yet. Giving your illness to your laptop is at present safely in the realm of science fiction. So maybe in the next release of the Terminator series, the machines will be defeated in the same way the Martians were in
0: H.G. Wells' War of the Worlds. They'll catch a cold from us. In the wild world around us, everything is connected. Curious Connections in Nature is a new exhibit exhibition at the CU Museum of Natural History that delves into these connections through hands-on activities, multimedia displays, and specimens from the museum's collection. The exhibition highlights symbiosis in our bodies, our backyards, and beyond. You can discover the role of the prairie dog in Colorado's grasslands, learn about the microbes we host in our bodies, explore the amazing world of lichens, diadems, and much more. The scientists who study these connections are profiled in the exhibit, and you can learn about their work. The exhibit runs through the month of September at the Henderson Museum on the CU campus.
1: And here's more on the Front Range Science Calendar. This Thursday evening, journalist Michael Cotus will speak about his new book, Megafire The Race to Extinguish a Deadly Epidemic of Flame. In Megafire, Cotus, who lives in Boulder, travels to the most dangerous and remote wilderness and to the backyards of people faced with these environmental disasters. He looks at the heart of this phenomenon and witnesses firsthand the heroic efforts of the firefighters and scientists racing against time to tame those deadly flames. From Colorado to California, China to Canada, Megafire describes the impact of these fires around the Earth. The talk will be at Boulder Bookstore this Thursday, starting at 7.30 p.m., followed by a book signing at 8.30. You can also catch an interview with CODIS this Thursday morning here on KGNU. That'll be from 8.35 to 9 o'clock with KGNU News Director Maeve Conran. CODIS will also give a talk at the Tattered Cover Bookstore on Colfax Avenue in Denver next Wednesday, September 6th at 7 p.m.
0: It has been hypothesized that the dinosaurs were killed off by a large asteroid that struck the Earth. The details of how the impact of a 10-kilometer-diameter asteroid led to global scale extinction have remained elusive. Recently, climate researchers from the Boulder area published new climate model results that show how the asteroid impact ultimately leads to widespread cooling in the atmosphere and increased exposure to ultraviolet radiation. These drastic and rapid changes to the climate due to the asteroid impact may explain the global scale extinction. Two of the Boulder area scientists are here today to talk about this new research. Dr. Charles Bardeen works at the, as a scientist at the National Center for Atmospheric Research, commonly called NCAR. Dr. Bardeen is the lead author of the new paper. Joining Dr. Bardeen is Dr. Brian Toon, a co-author of the new research, and a professor at the University of Colorado Boulder. Gentlemen, welcome to How on Earth. Thanks. Oh, thank you. So, your recent work shows how the large impact 66 million years ago may have led to a drastic transient climate change and this climate change may have contributed to the extinction of the dinosaurs and other life i want to get into your actual research but but before we get into that i was wondering if you could give give us a sort of a a setting a background what was from a climate perspective what was the earth like 66 million years ago
2: the Earth was v- similar to today. Um, it was perhaps a little bit warmer, a little bit more CO2 in the atmosphere. The continents were in slightly different locations, um, but similar vegetation to, to some of what exists today, and um, but different animal populations.
0: So similar type temperature ranges that we, we experience right now. Correct. So, and then what we have is... Uh, this 10 kilometer asteroid strikes the Earth. Of course, the immediate area where the asteroid strikes is is of course destroyed. And and, and we believe largely that uh, this area is now what we call the Yucatan. And there's a a crater down there, Chicxulub, that has been identified as a potential crater where this impact took place. Um, but, But you guys are talking about more destruction than merely the initial impact. What does this asteroid do to the climate?
2: So um, one of the important things for an impact of this size is that it, it injects a number of things into the atmosphere, um, vaporizes the uh, rock at the surface, vaporizes the asteroid that hit. And when that recondenses in the atmosphere, it creates small particles, and as those small particles re-entered, they got very hot and likely set off global wildfires and, um, and would have broiled the surface of the Earth. Uh, So that broiling is likely responsible for the uh, extinction of many of the large land animals, but animals that were in the water or could have burrowed and been sheltered from this broiling uh, could have been affected by the fires that followed and by the soot that was injected by the fires. And so that's kind of where we pick up the story in our model is to look at the effect of the soot on climate and that may have had an impact on extinction for those species that weren't killed immediately by the broiling.
0: And so Dr. Toon, do we have evidence of this type of soot? Well, that's one of the remarkable
3: things about this um, event is there's a little layer of rock around the whole earth, um, maybe as big as a quarter in some places and a lot of places thinner than that. There are exposures in Southern Colorado, for example. And, of course, you find um, shooting stars in, the, uh, in this layer, which are little round uh, sand-sized grains of uh, rock, which are the things that Chuck just referred to as entering the atmosphere and heating the air. Um, and so there's extraterrestrial debris there, which we can tell came from another place in the Earth because of rare elements in it. But there's, surprisingly enough, an immense amount of soot and charcoal in it about 75,000 million tons, and to produce that much soot and charcoal, you'd have to burn everything on the surface of the planet.
0: Wow. So you guys are starting from this initial condition, which is which is based on observations. We've seen this soot in the, in the geology. So Dr. Bardeen, you guys take this observation, and then you go forward with some climate modeling. Could you describe what you guys did? So we took um, a
2: modern climate model, kinds that are used for um, climate change studies, and we put in an amount of soot based on the the, the record that Brian was discussing, and um, put it in the atmosphere near the, the, in the upper atmosphere near the tropopause. So uh, there's a part of the atmosphere that experiences weather, the troposphere, where particles like soot would be rapidly removed. There's another part of the atmosphere higher up called the stratosphere, which isn't affected by weather, where particles could stay for a longer period. So in the model, you get these particles being elevated up into this upper part of the atmosphere where they can stay for many years before they eventually uh, fall out, and thus they can have a a climate effect. And so that's what our model looks at is how long does that process take? What is the radiative effect of having soot in the atmosphere? And it has many effects blocking sunlight from the surface, but also heating the upper part of the atmosphere, and that has
0: consequences. So let's start with that, that first part. It blocks the sunlight from the surface of the Earth. So when you ran your models, how much did you, sunlight did you find was blocked? And what does that mean? Does that mean that there's a change in temperature, uh, change in other things about the atmosphere?
2: Essentially, in the beginning, essentially all the sunlight was blocked from the earth Um, and that causes uh, cooling because sunlight is what warms the surface of the earth. As the soot falls out, you have less sunlight blocked, Um, but it took about two years for enough sunlight to come back to the surface for photosynthesis to occur. Photosynthesis is the process by which plants um, receive energy from the sun and convert that into organic matter. And so that's the primary way that we convert energy into a food source. And so it's uh, very important for the whole food chain to have that primary productivity.
0: So you mentioned it completely blocks the sun at first, and we were at this weird moment a week later where a a lot of Americans right now actually have an understanding of what happens when the sun is is blocked out in the middle of the day. But are you talking about even darker than that? And for how long would it have been like that?
2: Extreme dark conditions would have been weeks or or months, maybe, maybe a month. Wow. The level for photosynthesis is more like heavy overcast. So that's what you would have gotten to after two years. So you would transition gradually from darker than uh, a moonlit night
0: to um, this heavy overcast type of condition. So the type of chaos and, and eeriness that people experienced last week for just two and a half minutes. You've got even darker than that for months, and then for two years, it's, it's the worst weather in Seattle's ever seen with, with no sunlight possible. So uh, a lot of uh, plant life is dying off at the surface, and that destroys the ecological cycle. Animals are suffering from that. But you also said that at the same time this is happening, the near surface is cooling, the upper atmosphere is heating up. That's weird. Could you explain a little more about that? So the sunlight that
2: um, is hitting the Earth is going to get absorbed somewhere, and soot is very absorbing. So the soot in the upper atmosphere absorbed all that sunlight rather than the surface of the Earth absorbing that sunlight. And since that soot was higher up in the atmosphere, it's that part of the atmosphere that warmed much more than it normally would because normally you wouldn't absorb the sunlight there and because all the energy went into the upper part of the atmosphere the surface of the earth got very cool and globally it cooled by about 15 uh, degrees centigrade over a period of about three years to reach the minimum.
0: If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Dr. Charles Bardeen from NCAR and Dr. Brian Toon from CU. They have published a new paper that demonstrates how a drastic change in the climate due to a large asteroid impact may have created a transient climate that led to global extinction of life 66 million years ago. So Dr. Toon, Dr. Bardeen just mentioned you you cool the nearest surface, you heat up the upper atmosphere, uh, and immediately the first thing you affect is photosynthesis. But, you know, I've grown up my whole life worried about uh, ultraviolet radiation and the ozone layer and everything else and that all takes place in the stratosphere now you're talking about injecting a whole bunch of uh, soot and other stuff into the upper atmosphere what does this mean for things like uh, ultraviolet radiation do we get more of it at the surface do we get it less what does that mean for life too
3: well it was so dark at the surface that uh, the uh, loss of the ozone layer which happened Uh, because of the large temperature increases really didn't make any difference for several years. Um, But eventually the soot started to fall out and that cleared and then there was a dose of UV reaching the surface, which was probably a pr- difficult, but people don't really realize how the food chain on the earth works. You know, we live on the land, there's all these trees and plants around to eat, there's all these um, animals that are eating them, cows and deer and stuff to eat, then there's us and then there's a the king of the food chain, mountain lions, and so there's a food pyramid on the land and it takes about 10 years to eat all that food up, which is longer than this event happened. Uh, However, in the oceans, the food chain is more like a box. There's just as many plankton as there are zooplankton, and the plankton have to reproduce every few days to keep from all being eaten up by the zooplankton. So the food chain in the ocean will collapse in less than a week. Uh, So uh, by shutting off the lights um, so completely, the food chain in the ocean would have collapsed and you would have had mass extinctions in the ocean from the lack of light. On the ground, we've got temperatures that are colder than the ice age. Uh, there's no light, and of course, there are mass fires here that burned everything to eat. So any dinosaurs that didn't get burned alive um, would have had very little to eat. And of course, the whole burning alive thing, This you can simulate this in your house if you want. You go to your oven, push it on broil, let it warm up, open the door, hop in and see how long you last, uh, which won't be very long. And that's just what it looked like to the dinosaurs. That red glow bar in your oven is just what the sky looked like to the dinosaurs. It was glowing red and irradiating the surface in this intense light that would have killed anything exposed to it in a few minutes or tens of minutes.
0: So it's just almost mere luck that any of us are here because what you're describing is an environment where only the smallest of niches would have been places where uh, life could have survived. Uh, Were there preferentially distributed around the planet places that might've been more survivable than others?
2: Yeah, um, I mean, that's something we need to talk to the paleontologists about, and uh, they have the the fossil records. But in terms of our model, Coastal regions, regions near water will have less of a temperature change, so um, things might have fared better there. Um, Also, there's less soot at higher latitudes, so the light recovers sooner in the polar regions, so perhaps areas there um, might have been more hospitable sooner. But it would have been challenging everywhere.
3: But mostly our ancestors at the time were like mice, and we lived in holes in the ground. And so if you go and look at the paleontological record of who survived on the land, it was the little guys that lived in holes or that, you know, some bird-like animals that lived in marshes and swamps. So creatures that had a way to hide out um, survived. And, of course, mice don't have uh, big food requirements and they're used to being under the ground and eating roots and berries and insects. And even in a forest fire, that's who survives is the things that are you know, just a few um, centimeters or inches below the ground where they're protected from the heat.
0: So this is all fascinating stuff, but what I often find as a climate scientist myself is that when you talk about these kind of results to people, they always start to wonder, well, how do we know? And so I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about the tools we're using. Uh, You mentioned you use a uh, climate model that has been used for climate change studies for the current earth conditions. How does one adapt that to studying 66 million years ago?
2: Well, so there's two parts to that story. One, for our study, we actually use present day conditions um, because it takes a very long time to get an ocean that is in equilibrium with the atmosphere. Um, so there are researchers that we're working with at NCAR who do have models that are uh, being adapted for the Cretaceous period, and, and we will be working with them to study this in that context. Um, the climate models are validated for present day, and they're, but they've also been used for a number of uh, paleoclimate studies. So people have been, Trying to validate uh, both the the weather against present day, and also the weather, uh, and also the climate change that we've seen in the the paleo record. Uh, so,
0: so, but what you do is you take this this current style climate model, and Uh, Which is kind of disturbing because what you're saying is you've also simulated what would happen if a 10-kilometer asteroid hit us right now And that's kind of scary, but we'll set that aside You you take this model and do you just initially inject a bunch of soot into the atmosphere and then let it Let the model start moving forward in time and and see what happens?
2: Correct. That's what we did and We ran into a number of issues while we were doing that because this is a very large uh, perturbation to the system larger than what you would normally see in climate change studies. So there were some things we had to uh, adapt in the model to make it resilient to this so that we could complete the
0: study. So you already mentioned that you're working with some colleagues to start moving into a model that is designed for the Cretaceous period, which is uh, the end of which was 66 million years ago. and so that's one way to, to improve the modeling and improve the kind of observations you get from the models. But from the work you've already done, is there anything that you could sort of predict to tell the geologist to go out and look for?
2: Yeah, I think a lot of what we've seen in terms of the temperature effects and the light effects, they're not going to change drastically when you go to Cretaceous. The details of if you're looking at a particular fossil record from a particular location on the Earth, the details there may change, but two years of darkness is going to be two years of darkness, regardless of which model framework we put it in. And you will get a large cooling, but the actual surface temperature may be slightly different given that the Cretaceous was a warmer climate and had more CO2 to begin with.
0: So it sounds like there's a lot of future exciting directions for this in both modeling and in uh, geological observations. Well that, that's great. So today we've had Charles Bardeen from the National Center of Atmospheric Research and Brian Toon from the University of Colorado Boulder talking with us about their new research showing how 66 million, years of drastic, 66 million years ago a drastic change in the climate occurred because of a large asteroid impact. And this may have led to a global scale extinction of dinosaurs and, and basically all life on the planet. Uh, Charles and Brian, thanks for being here. Thank, Thank you. you.
1: That's all for this edition of How on Earth. Our executive producer is
0: Alejandro Soto. This week's show was produced and engineered by Joel Parker. Additional contributions by Susan Moran, Chip Brandit, and Beth Bennett. Our theme music was written and produced by Josh Cutler. Additional music from Rodrigo y Gabriela. Visit our website at howonearthradio.org to find past episodes, extended interviews, and you can subscribe to our podcast through iTunes and follow us on Facebook and Twitter.
1: Questions or comments? Call the KGNU comment line at 303-447-9911. For How on Earth, the KGNU Science Show, I'm Joel Parker. And I'm Alejandro Soto.